Welcome to episode eight, season two of the Comfort Feed. I'm Catherine Cleary. And I'm Juliana Edelman. And this week we are heading south. Not warm south, but super, super cold south. To get to work, you have to put on seven layers and massive snow boots and wade through, you know, hit deep snow sometimes. And, or, or it may be blowing a blizzard and it's, and, you know, it's, it's 40 knot winds and it's seriously cold. And where picking up a penguin may not mean a chocolate bar. And then he moves on to talk about the smell because this is something that, that, that comes through a lot of the cookbook. The smell of these animals, the seals particularly, and the seabirds and the penguins. So wrap up warm for this chilly, icy episode of The Comfort Feed. Catherine, how's it going? Two more, two more weeks of level. F- well, not even. It's like one more week of level five. Yeah, and then level two. Who knows what? Level some fudge we're doing for Christmas to make everyone supposedly happy, even though it'll all be shit in January. Yeah, uh, I, I do. I, there's a yellow rain warning in place for next week. That's going to be hard. The weather is definitely helping with level five, but I just was realizing today how much I am really missing being in a crowded place and I'm not a huge fan of being in a crowded place but just the um, communal energy of other people around you um, which you don't even think about Um, I'm not sure how do we go back to being like that we we will we will but it's gonna this is hard it's hard not being able to do that I have to say listening to uh, the interview guest one of our interview guests this week Luke Glazard talk about the communal life on an Antarctic station might be the first time it's ever occurred to me it could be nice to be at the South Pole (laughs) well yeah and it also occurred to me that I wonder are those people at the South Pole now still completely unaffected because presumably there's no COVID in those stations Uh, so they're all working together and living together as normal yeah it does it's such an extreme situation um And yet I think there's this kind of reliance on not self-reliance, which we're always being taught about, but actually um, community reliance for want of a better term. Um, I love these interviews. Um, There's what we have two cooks 70 years apart. So one in the 1950s and one in the last recent time, more recent. To be clear, I did not actually interview a cook who was in the Antarctic in the 1950s. <laughs> Instead, I talked to um, essentially a historian of the Antarctic uh, and a collector, Seamus Taff, and a recent uh, chef from the Antarctic. Well, he's not from the Antarctic, but who was recently in the Antarctic, Luke Glazard. So um, yeah, so we get two perspectives. We get kind of what's it like now and how does that compare to what it was like about 70 years ago and uh listener it is not the same it is not the same (laughs) but listen out for luke's thoughts on cooking for people and how that shifted between i think what he describes rather brilliantly as cooking for the generic rich old white people in a fancy restaurant to cooking for a a community of diverse community of scientists and other workers at the South Pole and how exciting that that was for him. It's it's he's a really great interview. I really enjoyed it. Um, Let's get ourselves in the mood. Press that button, Juliana. Give us some Antarctic winds and take us there.
It all started when a friend of mine... I'm uh, Seamus Taff. I'm one of the directors of the Shackland Museum in Athai County Kildare. Lent me a book. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny item. It's, um, it's a title called Fit for a Fid. And the subtitle is How to Keep a Fat Explorer in Fine Condition. What it basically is is a cookbook that was prepared by a, a gentleman called Gerald Cutland in the middle 1950s when he was serving as a cook on an Antarctic um, base camp in the Argentine Islands. The word FID is short for the, the Falklands Island Dependency Survey. And this was the precursor to what's now known as the British Antarctic Survey. And Cutland was a cook who had, who had, been, had worked as a ship's cook for many years, but had got a post on this Friday camp on the Argentine Islands to act as a cook for the, for the scientists who were, who were there for a year or so. And I suppose the odd thing was at the time that the FID wasn't in the business of employing full-time cooks. They generally depended upon the men in the base camps themselves to share the cooking. But for some reason, they decided to employ Cutland. And I suppose Cutland became very aware very quickly that most of the men there had little or no culinary skills. And he saw a necessity to, to leave some kind of basic um, guide to how they might survive in base camp by cooking for themselves. Cutland's cookbook made me wonder, are there chefs in the Antarctic now? And about a half an hour later, Google and Twitter had brought me to Luke. My name's Luke Lazard, and I was a chef in the Antarctic. Yeah, so I've I've been a chef my whole life really well. I, I certainly worked in the food industry my whole life. Started, literally got a job, a part-time job in a, a deli food shop when I was a teenager and still in college. Stumbled into it full-time and I was a chef by the time I was about 18. And yeah. 10, 11 years later, here I am. Luke spent not one, but two seasons serving as a chef for the British Antarctic Survey, or BATH, as they are known. They have one station on the continent of Antarctica, one on an ice shelf, and another three on nearby islands. But why would you sign up to be a chef in the Antarctic? And why does the survey need a chef? I started looking around and I reached a point where looking around for a change, looking around for something different, (laughs) and I certainly found it. I think the organisation is quite good at recognising the role that food plays as a kind of, as a a social element and kind of the morale factor. So they do want to hire genuine chefs. You know, they could just send down a load of sort of pre-packed astronaut food and have the guys hydrate it and, you know. Chefing in the Antarctic in the 21st century is a disorienting mix of the normal and the completely unique. To get to work, you you wake up in your uh, sort of accommodation building. You walk across to whatever other building you're working at that day. Um, it just so happens that to get to work, you have to put on seven layers and massive snow boots and wade through, you know, hit deep snow sometimes, and or, or it may be blowing a blizzard and it's and you know it's it's forty knot winds and it's seriously cold. But then once you get to work, you strip off all your cold weather gear and you hang it in the boot room and you kind of get on with life, you know. And that, it's mad how quickly that kind of becomes your day-to-day. Doing the job is, is in a way, quite settling once you get to work because you realise quite quickly it's still the job you've been doing for 10, 20 years, you know. Once I did my first couple of actual shifts, I realised, oh yeah, I'm a chef and I can do this and this is not you know, beyond me, that we have, you know, there are plumbers down there, there are electricians, there are carpenters, there are are all walks of life to some extent. So I think 
getting to the job is 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 familiar, but it's the the little things of you know life on station and how different that is to life back home. Being a chef at a research station presents different challenges to a high end restaurant. In my first season, I did struggle a little uh, for the first couple of months, I suppose, because as a chef, I was kind of frustrated. You know, I I, I didn't want to just be producing, you know, home food out of dry packets. You know, it's, it was a really, I don't want to say depressing because that's a strong word, but certainly it, it, as a chef, it's a kind of, um, you know, un- maybe a bit uninspiring, the, the produce and, 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 and what you're cooking and how you're cooking it. Um, it's en masse and it's quite simplistic. And then you have to just realise, you know, where you are and who you're cooking for and what it is all about. Basically, I wanted it to be a restaurant because that's what I was used to. You know, I'd just come from working in restaurants and I was wearing a white jacket and I had a knife in my hand. And to me, uh, that's something, that's what I do. The Basque Canteen may not be like a restaurant, but food and cookery in the Antarctic has come a very long way since the 1950s when Cutland wrote his cookbook. Bear in mind, this is the 1950s and they're in the Antarctic uh, area. So there's nothing in the way of really fresh vegetables or fresh food. So much of the of the food they bring with them on, on the ships is is tinned or preserved food. So I suppose he's trying to be inventive in terms of how can you make this interesting? How can you make this a bit more kind of tantalizing for, for the for the palate? And I suppose he first starts with trying to work with what he has around him. So he's looking at his, his kind of tinned fruits and tinned vegetables and tinned beef. And the first part of the cookbook talks about how you can make those into kind of digestible meals, be it stews or soups or desserts. Even in the 21st century, the chefs on station rely heavily on dried and preserved foods. Rothera Station, for example, needs to always have enough food for its residents to survive at least a year without deliveries if they need to. But, as Luke told me, food is so much more than nourishment. You spend a long day out in the cold, literally shoveling snow, you know, and it's minus a lot. Um coming into a good meal can make all the difference to your day. So first of all, the thing to remember, because it's so cold and because of, well, out of necessity, we break for food every two, three hours. So you eat for this five meals a day. It's really important. There's a lot of variety. As much as we're slightly limited by obviously what we can store and what keeps down there, uh, the variety of the produce such that we can create interesting and changing menus that are obviously nutritious but also actually are delicious and and remind people of home you know as much as it's important to to try and do um interesting food it's also a lot of the time people will just miss things like pizza and miss things like i don't know kfc and if we can do our version of that and give them that kind of reminder of normality and home on a saturday night like that's that's what we try and create. I think that's why, again, why they hire real chefs with some training rather than just getting people to fend for themselves because given a big storeroom of dried produce, frozen produce, what have you, we can look at it and create something interesting or familiar. Not only the actual food itself, but it's one of those things that I think is kind of lost in our society a bit now, but is communal eating you know people actually stop what they're doing every two or three hours come together sit down and eat and talk 
you know and there's there's because there's no mobile phones there's no netflix and stuff you know there's there's no distraction like that when you know you might some people might read a book or do a crossword but when you sit down for a meal there's nothing to do but eat that food and talk to the people you're eating it with which as much as the food is important i think that kind of no i mean it's a bit cliche to say that 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 family um vibe but it's but that's what it is you know you realize um the need for that the need for that community while whilst eating and i think you know sitting down at the dinner table with people is really important it's it's a focus it's a kind of hearth where people come together and the same has probably always been true of the role of food in polar science just in your overall knowledge of expeditions to the Antarctic and I mean, how important would you say food is to the success of what's going on in terms of exploration or science? Utterly, utterly crucial, like absolutely fundamental. It, it seemed that for many reasons, the mor- morale of people was, was, was predicated on what they got to eat or what they didn't get to eat as well. Didn't really matter what they're doing, whether they're 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 occupying a base camp or whether they're on a sledging journey to the South Pole. Food appears to be a, a fundamental part of their existence. If they weren't preparing food, they were thinking about food, or they were dreaming about food. And it's 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 quite astonishing when you when you read through the literature, the attitudes towards food. It was I was looking there recently at Ernest Shackleton, the Kildare Polar Explorer's book, Heart of the Antarctic. This is a book that gives his account of his expedition to the Antarctic in 1907 to 1909. And he's written, he wrote two substantial volumes about the expedition, but food first appears on page six of the book. Food must be wholesome and nourishing. If you're sledging, food must be light. Again, if you're sledging, it mustn't take too much preparation. And he said, and the fourth point he makes, variety is essential to relieve monotony. And it just struck me that ahead of all, you know, talking about his shipping, talking about his clothing, talking about the equipment they use, the temperatures, the food was on page six. And then he proceeds then to list the types of food they brought with them. And you recognize a lot of the brand names from, from nowadays. Coleman's Mustard, Roundtree, um, Cadbury's Chocolate. So what we often forget is that the Antarctic winter is six months of darkness. The Antarctic summer is six months of daylight. So therefore, how do you structure your day? You structure your day around your meal times. It's how the men mark the day. It's how they break down the day for themselves. And particularly through the the Antarctic winter, when you have six months of night, the ritual of eating together, preparing food is hugely important. And even on the sledging trips themselves, um, after the end of their day sledging, there's this expectation of looking forward to even the meagre rations on sledging, which often is sledging biscuits, which are just kind of wholemeal biscuits almost. Um, There's also what they call hoosh. And hoosh is kind of this mishmash between pemmican, which is a a, a, a kind of a dried food, a combination of beef and fat and biscuit boiled up together. Not very appetising at all. Shackleton's next expedition after Nimrod was the endurance one. And people are familiar with the, with the tale where they, they go south, their ship gets crushed in the ice, they, they they then try and get back to safety, and they end up on Elephant Island, where they have very little food, and there's there's, there's 20, 22 men stuck there for three months. And one of the highlights of their of their day, of their evening, is, is just before lights out, before they go to sleep, they pull out this cookery book, and each night they read one recipe out of the book. And then after the recipe is, is read, they, well, a, a, a discussion ensues about the pros and cons of the recipe and suggestions about how it might be improved or how it could be, could be bettered. I love the picture of a bunch of men stranded far away from civilization, not certain if they will ever get home, comforting themselves with fantasies of food they will probably never cook. 
food is still very much part of trying to make Antarctica home, as Luke told me. The home comforts, that's what people miss. Things like pizza, things like people want to... We, we were doing a, a sort of a fry-up, an English breakfast, every one, every Sunday. If we took that away, there'd be riots. You know, whether it be like roast dinners on a Sunday. And then a lot of sort of, I think, takeaway items, you know, mother's cooking items, fried chicken, whether it be, you know, just sort of homely stuff, lasagna, you know, cottage pie, that sort of thing. There, there, there were occasions that the chefs, we tried to push the boat out, whether it be special occasions in the sort of Antarctic diary, as it were, or, you know, people's birthdays or, or whatever, a reason to, to make a little effort. And we, we would do as best we could sort of three courses and, and, and lay the tables, as it were. <laughs> but really, I think what people miss most is is those, yeah, creature comforts, those home comforts, the things that remind them of what their mum used to cook or what they eat with their girlfriend on a Friday night or their boyfriend on a Friday night. For Luke, the food became less about cooking and more about people. It's obviously, it's an incredible experience to be down there. It's a beautiful part of the world that very, very few get to see. But I think, as with almost any experience, what can make it or break it is, is you know, the, the people you spend it with, right? And I think as a chef as well, like I say before about working in the catering industry, particularly when you work your way up to work to be working in some good restaurants and some sort of higher end places, um, you can end up feeding a lot of the same people. And it can be quite actually sterile when the, you come in every day and you have to produce things. If it has to be perfect, it has to be the same, you know, and you do the same thing every day. And, you know, it's the same rich old white people having their nice bottle of wine and there's no there's no real the humanity gets lost a little bit whereas when you're down south and it's people you literally live with spend every day with you know and you have to socialize with there's no sort of going home and hanging out with your family these people are your family and if you're cooking for them it's that real thing of you know nourishing people it becomes so it's something more than um just you know feeding it's 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 uh taking care of people you know and, and it's a communal thing i think that's really important there's 120 people at the peak you might not be you might not know everyone you might not be best friends with everybody you might have a pilot that's just transiting through for two days and you don't actually get to meet but um you still have an you still have an impact i think more so than working in a in a fine dining restaurant you know as, although it might be a great experience for someone it's not um it doesn't have such the effect that a meal down there does. And I think that's the most rewarding thing is people really appreciate it as well. And it's an environment where on in, in every area of life down there, people muck in as well. If, you know, one of the vehicles gets stuck in the snow, the six nearest people need to get shovels and help him out. And if one of the chefs wants to put on a special dinner for someone's birthday or they whatever it may be, people come and help out. You know, people come, whether they help you do prep or they help you do the washing up or even just help you carry plates or anything or just coming and saying thank you afterwards. You know, people really appreciate the effort you go to and and people are really willing to get involved and and be supportive. And I think that's the most gratifying thing. You, you You can try and, you know, spend 
days producing some large tasting menu. And, and people are just confused by it. People want to feel, you know, just at ease and, and something they can just share with everyone and not have to, you know, analyse. It's all very well and good to to, uh, to produce this amazing self-indulgent stuff, but there's a time and a place for that, you know. There may be no room for self-indulgent chefiness in the Antarctic, but at least the chefs no longer have to scavenge for their food. Gerald Cutland focused the first part of his book on making use of tinned foods, and then the far longer part on how to make the most of what you could kill. But at the same time that he becomes intrigued by the wildlife around him, because this is an area, particularly in the, in the Antarctic summer, which is it's rich in wildlife. You have seals, you have penguins, you have uh, seabirds. And these all have become part of the cookbook. I mean, would that have been normal for explorers, even in the 1950s, to be hunting as a, as a part of, you know, supplementing their diet? I think it was. I think it was because certainly by the 1950s, bear in mind, um, scurvy had played expeditions, poor expeditions from the 18th century onwards. And I suppose it was only with, with the d- discovery of vitamin C's existence in the 1930s that they became very conscious of the fact that fresh meat was one of the, one of the, one of the great kind of um, things that you can use to, to, to prevent scurvy. So there was always a sense that when you went to work in the Antarctic regions as a scientist, that you would utilize those resources that were around you. And that meant obviously shooting and killing all the sea life and the seabirds around you as well. Some of the recipes, you know, he's got seal brains, he has shag basically served like, or a cormorant basically served like a duck. Uh, did any of them sound appetizing to you? Not particularly, not particularly. What's more interesting in some ways than the finished product is actually the preparation of the animal or the bird uh, prior to cooking. So if you look at there's a, there's chapter five where he has the great term shags or what we know as to be cormorants. And if I just quote as follows, um, if the bird is eaten too fresh, the flavor is very strong. So the best thing to do is to hang it for about two weeks. Outside is the best place where the air can get it freely. But where you hang it is up to you. I couldn't care less. <laughs> the, next, <laughs> the next thing is to prepare it for the pot. First, you have to skin it, although I've heard of people trying to pluck it, which will be a very tiresome job of work and would take about a day to complete. And who would want to oh, eat, eat it after all of that bother? I remember my just I remember my mother, my grandmother plucking pheasants, and that was even that was a bad enough job. Never mind trying to pluck a cormor- cormorant. Whose feathers are all densely Absolutely. packed. Densely I mean, packed. Yeah. This is a big bird as well, a serious sized bird. Of course, he says, there is a quicker way. And that is to cook it with feathers and all on. But it wouldn't taste quite so good. So we come back to skinning. The smell of these animals, the seals particularly, and the seabirds and the penguins. The next thing is to try and remove some of the characteristic smell before the actual cooking. This is quite simple. And all you have to do is place the bird into a pan of cold water, place it on a hot stove, and bring to the boil, skimming off any scum that may rise to the top of the water. Once the water is boiled, remove the bird and allow it to drain after rinsing cold water and washing off any scum. And then is then ready for cooking in any of the following recipes. I might add that where fat is mentioned, the best to use is beef suet, as this tends to enhance the flavour and is most certainly better for the making of the gravy. That's very much, I think this is something that, that probably our grandparents would remember, beef suet has been a, as a constant yeah. kind of um, thing to add to most recipes. And there's, there's often a sense of some of these recipes that they're trying to turn what they have into beef. If you're at a, a coastal station, there is there is wildlife. And you realise quickly that, you know, you're in uh, a part of the world that you're the alien. You know, there's there's 
seals and penguins and things and you just have to recognize that um you know the privilege you have in being there it's a, a pretty pristine environment we're we're, uh, we're lucky to be in so yes yeah, as, as as little impact as we can have the better so there's certainly no like a no point in packing a fishing rod the sort of midwinter meal is the tends to be a bit of a celebration as as the seasons turn um and it's always been a big deal and now it's that's the day we save the best produce for back then it was the day they <laughs> catch the most penguins for this respect towards wildlife is much more recent than you might expect there's a sense that the expeditions in the 50s are expected to kind of almost live off the land as well as much as bringing all their tin preserved and canned goods at the same time um, and i get the sense of reading the literature it's only really in the in the 60s when the americans build substantial bases on the antarctic um, landmass itself um, that you're getting these kind of fully fledged kitchens and they're bringing down acres of fillet steaks and sides of beef and all these kind of um, normal things you would expect to see in the chef's kitchen. Despite much better supplies of fresh food and no need to round up penguins, there are still some foods that are hard to get down south. There was one jar of Nutella, right? <laughs> and, and it disappeared in like a week. And then we spent another three months with every couple of days someone asking if we'd found any more in the, in the, uh, in the delivery yet. The one thing that I really missed was eggs. And when you can get, it sounds ridiculous, but when after a long time to have like a couple of poached eggs or fried eggs uh, where you cut it and you've got the runny yolk. Oh, that was amazing. And the chefs find ways to use food to celebrate occasions. You know, when you're in this stunning wilderness, outdoor space, you'd be a fool not to make most of it if you can. So we did a couple of events where uh, sort of, again, to mark a sort of seasonal moment, whether it be just after, after the first ship has arrived, for example, and therefore you get a big dump of, of uh, new produce to play with um, and the ship departs and it's been successful when everyone's unloaded all the cargo. Those sort of moments are, are, are moments, you know, in life down there and they become uh, sort of pivotal. So you mark it as best you can. And we did a barbecue, obviously took a, a, a quite a lot of uh, preparation in beforehand in the kitchen, but then everyone could gather outside on a relatively clement day and, uh, and share that. And again, it's just one of those things that were it to be back home in the summer, you'd be doing with your friends and, and recreating that. So yeah, Christmas day and, uh, and Antarctic barbecues. While today's polar researchers can be treated to a barbecue, the explorers of the early 20th century were often almost at starvation by the time they reached the end of their journey. What is the first meal that they want when they get back to, you know, to civilization? I, I would often describe it. It's, not, it's never sophisticated foods. It's comfort foods. It's fatty foods. You know, it's the modern equivalent will be a bag of chips, something very simple, but very tasty. They never want elaborate meals. They want something very filling, something very nourishing, something very meaty. I was looking there recently at uh, a piece about the Nimrod expedition. And this is the expedition where Shackton came within about 90 miles of the South Pole. And when Shackton was leading his, his four-man party back to base camp, they were kind of running out of food. And part of the day they would spend talking, they would invent uh, new foods. Shackton described these as the, as the high watermark of gastro gastronomic luxury. And what was, he, he singled out Frank Wilde, the second in command, what they called a wild roll. And this was basically a, a portion of mincemeat 
wrapped in rashes of fat, fatty bacon, set in a thick pastry and fried in a pan full of fat. And it's funny, <laughs> as their bodies are kind of wasting away with the lack of food and the exertion, it's what they want is fat. They want something that's literally dripping in fat. It doesn't sound terribly tasty, but perhaps in their emaciated state, this is what most appeals to the body and the mind. There is little risk of starvation at the South Pole now, but working there does mean giving up things. So what was Luke craving when he got back to England? As a chef, as much as I've, it undermines everything I've just said, I, I, looked for, I went out to restaurants. When Luke finds a way to recreate that sense of a community coming together around the hearth of the dinner table, I don't think he'll be looking to Cutland's cookbook for inspiration. I wasn't tempted to try the recipes, even the ones without penguin. I will send you your, uh, I'll send you your cookbook back. <laughs> I won't be cooking any seals' brains anytime soon. Luke says that his experience has changed the way he thinks about being a chef. And he's definitely got the polar bug. For, for anyone going down there for that length of time, it certainly makes you re- reflect on, on how you approach things and what's, what's, the, what's most important about it and why you do these things, you know. Um, I, I think it, it, how that translates into um, chefing back, at, back in the real world, I don't know. But um, it certainly makes you think about, you know, what's the most valuable part of what you do and, and why do you do it. I spent two seasons down there. The first was six, seven months or so, and the, the second was four, four or five. Um, and currently now uh, there's a new intake just about to depart, I think, the next couple of weeks. They'll be heading south. Um, and, yeah, it's part of me that's jealous, actually. I didn't think that would be the case, but it, it really is. I just love the contrast between the sort of uh, image of Luke, you know, in his white chef's uh, jacket, which he says he abandoned rather quickly, and his sharpened knife to, um, you know, looking in those uh, giant freezers and the shipping containers. And uh, Jared Cutland, as Seamus Taft describes, essentially looking outside around the hut to see what, what can he round up and kill and turn into something edible. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a very different way to, you know, first skin your first skin your cormorant. But I suppose there is that same sense of food security or insecurity about being somewhere so extreme where your delivery is coming at a certain time um, and things are precious because they're only coming at certain times into the system. The cook's ability to hunt and gather is probably not a skill set that we need anymore. Thankfully, not a skill set that most cooks need anymore. Although there is, I mean, there's a very trendy restaurant kind of um, wild food movement around that as well. Yeah, but probably doesn't focus on shags and penguins and seals, uh, hopefully, anyway. I don't think that would be acceptable anymore. Although I've, no. I've eaten pretty out there ingredients in the Faroe Islands, you know, where they still have a, a legal um, whale hunting um, culture. But it's 
uh, it's increasingly something that, you know, that idea, I think it's very much an island culture of this is the food that we had to eat. So therefore our culture is is dependent on us eating that. Um, I'm not sure any culture can really claim that anymore to, to kill endangered animals. Um, can I just ask you, do you have any interest in going to the Antarctic? Is that a place that appeals to you? Um, hmm. I would be, yes. I mean, I think it would be an astonishing thing to do. I would be torn by the idea of what would be the carbon cost of me going to the Antarctic. Um, I would need to have a really good reason that in some way I would be helping the ice not to melt by being there rather than causing more ice to melt by going there. So I was kind of more sold by Luke than I've ever been by anyone else, just the the communal aspects of it. But then he made this remark, which I, I actually didn't include in the end, about needing to have enough food in case everything gets cut off and you all have to survive for a year, a year and a half. And I thought, ah, uh, maybe not. <laughs> Sizing up your, you know, your part cabin partner to see whether they're going to be dinner at some point if it got to that, yeah. you know, there is that extremity. Yeah. And both interviewees were very interesting about that idea about how central food is to well-being and feeling well um, and happy in your in your life, in your job, wherever you are. Um, and especially when you're somewhere that extreme, I suppose, reminding you of home um, and that's uh, food and home and eating and restaurants is going to be our theme in our next episode. Uh, and I'll be talking to a man called Jonathan O'Grady, who for him, restaurants are the place where he feels happiest. But for a long time, even before COVID, um, there were problems with his ability to access restaurants. So he's very interesting. and We're going to talk to him about that. And we'll be talking about an app that's been put together by a brilliant uh, young Irish man, which is called Access Earth, which is all about um, allowing people to share uh, access information all around the world uh, through an app. Great. Well, it sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. So I think that just leaves it to me to thank my two guests for this week. Luke Glazard, who is still a chef, and Seamus Taff, who is involved with the Athai Shackleton Museum. And also, of course, Ross Hannon for our music. We'll be sending out a new episode into the airwaves in two weeks. Yeah, when we'll be at level something or other by then. Yeah, when we'll be at level something or other. Level, we'll be at level December. That's what we'll be at. Level uh, Christmas is on. Level Christmas is go. Our neighbour, one of our neighbours has just put lights up today and they look lovely, I have to say. I'm I'm the Scrooge who doesn't want to bring the decorations down until like the 15th of December and I am ready to bring the decorations down. I will be getting a tree on the 1st of December. We can talk about the tree in our next episode because the tree will be up. All our December episodes are going to feature me and Juliana uh, singing Christmas carols and drinking um, something something warm I, and sugary. I won't be singing. I only lip sync. <laughs> we'll say I might burst into a Christmas carol. Yeah, no, I, I must say let's just celebrate this however way we can. Okay, well, we'll talk to you in December. And we'll be on Level Christmas.